But I think at the end of the day, opera's struggle is to justify itself in the modern world. And, you know, why should people come to the opera? Why, you know, why should we continue to be interested in some of these stories that were written hundreds of years ago? Welcome to I Am An Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon, one of the approximately 9 million foreign-born people living here. I left Australia around 15 years ago to study in the UK. One thing led to another, and I stayed. This new season of the podcast has been commissioned by the Edinburgh International Festival. I'll be speaking with some of the artists whose work is programmed this year, and who also happen to be, you guessed it, immigrants. In this episode, I chat with Madison Nonoa. Madison is an opera singer. She was born and bred in New Zealand and made the big move to the UK in 2017 to complete the prestigious opera course at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. She's based in the UK and performs around the world. Madison will appear at the Edinburgh International Festival in a concert of songs by Brahms with pianists Malcolm Martineau and Stephen Osborne on August the 13th. We talked about the all-too-common immigrant story of visa woes, how opera must always strive to be relevant, and of course, being Antipodeans, we had to talk about coffee. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, my name is Madison Nonoa and I am an immigrant. Welcome to the show, Madison. Lovely to have you. I think, yeah, you are the first Antipodean that I've had on my podcast, which is, yay, yay. we can like geek out about Antipodean stuff. What is Antipodean stuff? I mean, I guess coffee culture. Are you you one of those coffee snobs? I'm totally a coffee snob. Yeah, I totally am. But like, I think coffee in New Zealand and Australia is better than everywhere else. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, I moved to the UK in 2004. And there was one place, one place in London that was run by New Zealanders called Flat White. And I used to travel there. It took me an hour to get there. I used to go there four times a week. That's such a common story, I think, amongst um, New Zealanders and Australians that travel. I remember when I first got to London, I found one place as well that, that I just religiously went to. And I think it's called Brickwood. And it's, again, it's run by Australians and New Zealanders. And I just sort of thought, no, this is the only place that I can go for coffee. I'm glad that I'm not the only snob about this. And I I would not care if it was like six pounds for a coffee. I'd be like, that's it's worth it. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so at the moment, where are you? You're in Strasbourg, is that right? Yes, I'm in Strasbourg in France. What's the coffee scene? Tell me. <sighs> so <laughs> it took me about two weeks here of trying different places. And I have finally found one coffee. Wow. Holy grail. <laughs> yeah, it is the holy grail. <laughs> I go there every single day because it's the only place I trust now. And every time someone in the in the cast says to me, oh, and we're just going to go get coffee or we're going somewhere else, I sort of think, no, I found my one place. I can't go anywhere else. <laughs> exactly. No, it's so funny because um, <clears throat> when I first met my husband here, he's English, on one of our first dates he turned up and he had a Starbucks, oh like one God. of those pint-sized Starbucks. No. And I thought, I don't know if this is going to work. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like, how do we get beyond this? But I schooled him, I educated him, and now he's (laughs) even snobbier than I am. (laughs) So tell me, um, Madison, about your upbringing, your childhood. So you were born in New Zealand. Yes. But your family is is of mixed heritage, is that right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So my my mother's family are all from the Pacific Islands, so from two main islands, which are Niue and Samoa. 
yeah, so that whole branch of my family only moved to New Zealand maybe, I think, in the 1960s. And then my dad's family are all sort of of British heritage, if you go back far enough. I sort of have always grown up with stories of moving places and of being from somewhere else. On both sides of my family, actually, my father's mother is very proud to be Scottish, for example, and I grew up with a lot of stories about Scotland, or even though she was born in New Zealand, so she's very much a New Zealander, there's there's still this idea of being rooted somewhere else. Then, of course, my mother's family, a lot of, you know, my, my grandparents, for example, and, and their brothers and sisters not speaking English as a first language. So yeah, I grew up with a very multicultural influence in my life, which I feel very, very thankful for. It certainly gives you a lot of different perspectives about life. I think my family story was probably quite, what's the word, typical of, of many, many others who are sort of mixed heritage in New Zealand in that my grandparents on my mother's side moved to New Zealand from the islands for a better life. So they saw New Zealand as having better education, better work opportunities. But of course, when they moved to New Zealand, they spoke no English at all. They had no formal education. So I guess, you know, I've realized as I've grown up that the decision they made, the sacrifice they made to leave behind their home culture and, and everything they grew up with, that was a sacrifice they were not really making for themselves because they were never going to reap the benefits of that move. They were always going to be the ones that did the hard yards. And it was, you know, it was my mother's generation and, and then me who really, like I was born in New Zealand and grew up with it as my primary culture and English as my first language. So I sort of look back now and I think, I really am the beneficiary of that enormous journey that they took because, you know, my grandparents were very, very poor when they moved. They had nothing. And my mom was in a similar situation when she was growing up. It was very, very tough. So I sort of recognize that it's it takes generations for, for these decisions to actually bear fruit. And it's quite something for me realizing that that I am, you know, I, I'm the one that gets to have that fruit. But the, the downside of it is I do feel like I'm not so connected to that island culture. And that's the sacrifice that maybe I have is that I grew up around a lot of traditional Samoan things. And, and of course, you know, my family being Samoan, but I don't speak Samoan fluently. And being of mixed heritage, you, there's lots of lines that you walk in between, you know, which culture do I identify with more and, and who do I belong to and, and what is this, you know, world of belonging to both. It's a mixed bag, I think, in terms of where you feel like you fit in and the things that you feel like you've gained from the move that your grandparents took, but then also things that you lost. So I grew up feeling, I'd say, <laughs> sort of connected, but not totally immersed. And that's been a lifelong sort of journey to try and work out, I guess. So you started singing at an early age, is that correct? Yeah, I did. I think I was about five. Um, Yeah. And I I don't think anyone in my family knew where it came from. You know, I will tell you, there's a sort of family traditional story that's brought out every birthday party about why I'm singing, which is every single time my granddad gets up, I'm like, I know exactly what he's going to say. I'll preface it by saying no one in my family sings oh no that's not totally true some of my cousins on my mom's side are very very musical but nobody sort of sings professionally or anything like that and um I was about three years old I was in a pram a pushchair thing 
and my grandparents were pushing me down the road on in Wellington in New Zealand, which is the capital city. And there was a young opera singer on the side of the road. I think she was a student at the university and she was busking. And apparently I was just fascinated with this woman and I'd never seen anything like it before. And I, I undid my um, strap in the pram and I leapt out of the pram and I just refused to leave her. I was, I was so bewitched by the sound she was making. So was, apparently ever since then, <laughs> I had decided that I wanted to try and do what this girl had done and I was really taken with it. So yeah, my dad put me in a choir when I was five and yeah, I wanted to sing. Just, wow. Yeah. That's quite, that's quite an instinct as a toddler. Yeah. <laughs> to be like, I want to do this. This is something that speaks to me. Is that something you, you think about when you're thinking about your career? Yeah, I guess I sort of have always really taken it for granted throughout my life that I've wanted to be a singer. I just sort of, I knew that from before I can really remember very much, I always had this idea that one day I was just going to be a singer. So that's that's what I was going to do. And the, the sort of older I become, I feel like the more reflective about life in general I become. And I think the signs were always there. And there was always things in my life that I think were pointing to me wanting to do music and be involved in music. And yeah, that was sort of just the first really, really strong one. And it does feel like an instinct. I think that's definitely what it feels like. How did you kind of gravitate towards opera and classical music as a style you were interested in? I think it was my grandmother, actually. I remember her asking me to come into the kitchen when I was about seven or eight because I, I lived with my grandparents as well. And she had obviously had a talk with my dad and my granddad and she had, I think she heard on the radio or something that classical music was good for children. If you could get your kids to learn a musical instrument, it was good for their brains. So I remember her calling me into the kitchen and saying, okay, we've decided that you are going to learn a musical instrument. So you get to pick, it's either the violin or the piano. And I picked violin for absolutely no reason. <laughs> I just sort of thought, okay, I'll play the violin. So that was how I got into classical music. And that was, that sort of became my world from about the age of seven. Um, and then not long after that, I was in the choir sort of doing my thing every Saturday morning. I feel so sorry for my dad actually looking back on it because he had to take me to choir every Saturday morning. And I think it was about the last thing he wanted to do was sit and watch a bunch of kids sing at 9am on the weekend. But there was a notice in the local paper for auditions for a, a local production of an opera coming up. And my grandmother said, oh, well, maybe she should do this. So I went along to this audition and yeah, it was Carmen, the opera Carmen, which is all in French. Again, I had never spoken French before. I had no experience with French. Um, but I, I just formed an obsession with it. I got into the choir and I went to every rehearsal. I was, I think it was the storytelling aspect of it, to be totally honest. I was obsessed with the way people were acting and this language they were speaking, the music, the whole spectacle of, of the show just was fascinating to my sort of eight, nine-year-old brain. I memorized, I, I'm going to say in quotation marks, I memorized the whole opera because of course I didn't know French. So I was effectively just mimicking sounds that I was hearing, but I'd go home and sing the whole opera to everyone and force my family to listen to me do it. And <laughs> just, yeah, and that was my first opera. And from there, it was any audition that came up that asked for children to be involved in opera, I'd, 
I made it very clear to my grandmother that she was to tell me because I wanted to do it and yeah. That was quite fortuitous that your grandmother listened to the radio that day. Yeah. So in New Zealand, what's the scene like, the opera scene? Is it quite small? Is it? Yeah, I would say it is quite a small, um, it's a very, very small scene actually. But the amazing thing about New Zealand is that we've got so many opera singers. For how small we are, there is just so many really, really good singers that come out of New Zealand. And yeah, we have the National Opera Company, which is based in Auckland, and then smaller sort of opera troops around the country. It's not a particularly, how do I put this, common thing in New Zealand to go to the opera. So that sort of means that the people that are involved in the opera network are just super passionate about it. And it's very much a labour of love because, you know, it's not like one of the sort of more mainstream forms of entertainment in the country. So you have to be all in. So you were, it sounds like throughout your childhood and teenage years, you were all in. This was your life. And so I guess because you were so all in and this was your sort of mission in life, you had a real drive for it, you kind of would have known from an early age then that you were going to be an immigrant. That's totally true. And and again, that blows my mind now that I think about it, that from about the age of I must have been about 11 or 12, I just sort of understood that when I left high school, I would – at some point have to go probably either to America or to the UK. And that was just always part of my planning and and always part of what I thought was going to be my future. And I guess when I was that age, it was sort of easy to think about in a way because it wasn't actually happening. Whereas when it came time to pack my suitcase and leave my room, it was one of the saddest and most terrifying moments as well as being very very exciting it's oh god it's scary it's really scary yeah Yeah. so when did you pack your suitcase when when did that happen that happened uh, it was 2017 um and it was quite a uh, it was it was a really emotional time because I had basically I I had been planning for some years okay I'm gonna go and do my master's degree in the UK or or America, hopefully. And so I had gone to London to do an audition at the Guildhall School of Music in, I think it would have been late December or mid-December 2016. And for some reason, I just assumed I probably wouldn't hear anything for a really long time. So I'm I'm also a master procrastinator. So I thought, I'll, I'll have lots of time to mentally prepare and it'll be fine. I won't hear for months. And then it was like a week later, I heard back from them saying, yep, you're in, we'd love to have you, see you in September. And all of a sudden I thought, oh my God, September, that's only nine months. And that's, you know, I have to get my visa sorted. I have to find somewhere to live. I have to get all these things together. And and when you've got so much to do with like, you know, technical things like that, the time just flies because you're constantly trying to get stuff together. So before I knew it, it was like July and I had no time left with my family basically and I think the the scariest thing about the move and and packing up my room was just the sudden understanding that I think nobody said out loud because I'm, I'm very very close to my family we're a very close group and I don't think any of us dared to actually say out loud okay well this is this is it like that you're actually you're not just leaving home you're leaving the country now and We've always known since you were a very small child that once you left the country, it meant, yeah, sure, she'll come back for visits and for holidays and things, but she won't come back to live. So that was quite a profound moment to understand that because I think 
you know, lots of my friends had done trips abroad and, and the big OE that lots of Aussies and Kiwis do. But with the big OE, there's always that knowledge of, yeah, I'll be gone for a year or two and then I'm going to come back. Whereas with this move, it was, no, this is like, this is a proper, I'm going to try and establish myself in a new place and stay there. So can I just ask about your teenage years? Because, yeah. you know, you would have been different to most teenagers around you, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, you know, I'm just trying to think of like the world of opera where emotion is often at a fever pitch and, you know, yeah. the, the romance and the, the drama. Yeah. And then how was your kind of, did you have teenage romances and did you kind of compare them to the opera romances and go, oh, this yeah. is not... <laughs> yeah I think so I think I've always had a tendency to be quite theatrical so for sure for sure I mean I was it was sort of very lucky my my first sort of proper romance when I was a teenager he he was also someone that was wanting to be an opera singer so we were both very operatic okay well that's fine then yeah Yeah, yeah. that worked out really well how was your relationship very opera What, what do you mean by that well, when you think you're you're teenagers, so you're already like very emotional all the time, and then we were both trying to be opera singer or studying opera and studying classical music. So a lot of the music you sing and and, and consume and and the opera you watch is also very intense and dramatic, and the the texts of the opera as well, like the the sort of things that the characters say to each other are just like oh I don't know what's an example like I will just I will go out and get the moon for you that kind of right. thing. so I think we we're very um inspired I want to say by by all this kind of drama have you had any relationships with just a bog standard person <laughs> like... yeah well my boyfriend is a he's actually a Portuguese and English teacher so oh, right okay I'm very trying, different yeah I'm trying very hard to um get him into into opera and he's 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 getting there <laughs> Hello. If you are heading to the festival this year, do get clicking via the show notes and book your ticket to Madison's performance on August 13th. If you're enjoying hearing about the experiences of immigrants from all walks of life, why not go back to season one and listen to previous episodes? There are still more episodes to come in this special Edinburgh International Festival season, so do subscribe and spread the word. We would so appreciate it. Okay, back to Madison. were you then when you got on the plane in 2017 I was 23 23 and you had been to London before you said to do the audition yes I had okay what was the visa situation we always we're always interested in the visa situation so was it a student visa was it an ancestry visa because you've got um no my my grandparents did me no favors and that they were not born in the UK which was super useless useless um (laughs) So yeah, I went on a student visa for the first two years and then I went on to the mobility under 30s visa and then I had to go on to the, what's called the, I think it's tier five global talent visa, which I just want to say was one of the most stressful experiences of my whole life. The whole visa and getting a visa thing is unbelievably stressful I yeah I hate yeah. it a lot of people listening can relate I'm sure so yeah. you um so, because you do have did you say Scottish British yeah. ancestry but your grandparents yeah. had to be born there yeah. in order yeah. for you to get any benefit from that okay so tell me about the global talent visa process why was it so horrific it's a stressful visa to put together because you have to you, you have to prove that you are um I want to say 
I had to put together a portfolio of reviews of programs featuring my name of just evidence basically that I was doing the job that I you know was saying I was doing but there's very little what was constantly surprising to me is on the on all the websites everyone you could ever ask about how do I put this portfolio together for example no one will act, can actually tell you how to what it needs to look like they just say put a portfolio together so you think god I've got no idea what it's meant to contain, what it's supposed to look like, what qualifies as good evidence. And then in the back of your mind, you have this running loop of terror that if you do anything wrong, it's going to be denied and you know, you're going to have to go back home. And yeah, and then there's also, I think I had a hiccup because as well as all the, the evidence for the portfolio, you then also have to get three reference letters, I think, from reference letters I think from individuals within the industry who can testify that you you're good enough to do the job but what I didn't realize was that these references had to I think they have to be within three months or within six weeks or something like that yeah there's a time limit on and I always feel a bit awkward asking for reference letters I suppose it's just asking other people for a favor so there's always that awkwardness of oh please can you can you take time out of your day to write me a letter yeah and in this case that they have to really big you up yeah it was my boss and and so it was I already felt oh I, I hate asking for this and then I asked for those letters first because I thought, okay, that'll be something I can just get out of the way. And then I did the portfolio. And by the time I had finished doing the portfolio, it was seven weeks or it was like a week after. So now the reference letters were no longer viable. So I had to go back and ask oh, for no. again, basically, and just redate them. And it was just, yeah, anybody that's done a visa application can attest. It's just always a runaround and always a panic and... And then, of course, when you send your passport away, when you ask your first visa in in New Zealand to get here, we had the fiasco of you send your passport away and nobody can tell you where it's been sent to. You just sort of send it in the post and then it comes back to you at some point a month to three months later. And you think, oh, gosh, it's just so it's so stressful. And it's also the cost as well, because these visas cost money. And then if you don't get it, they don't give you the money back. Exactly. And and that, to be honest, was the huge um, stress for me with the the global talent was that's why I felt like I just couldn't mess it up because, yeah, it's a lot of money. And so with that visa, does that mean you can then apply for settlement soon? Yeah, I think you have to be in the UK for five years and the student years don't count. So I think I can renew the global talent visa and then after that, the next step would be leave to remain. So yeah, a couple more hoops to jump through. Okay. So how was your time uh, studying at the Guildhall? It was really great. I really, really loved my time there. I would say it was just the first year was just culture shock after culture shock. I mean, in New Zealand, I'm from a place called Hamilton, which is a semi-big city, but not huge and definitely not by Europe standards. <laughs> so for me, London was the big experience. In New Zealand, we just don't have any institutions like the Guildhall. The Guildhall is a really, really prestigious, big university full of amazing musicians. Often these musicians have come from music schools so they've done this their whole lives or they've you know come from Oxbridge and they're doing their master's degree here and and that was just mind-blowing I think the year that I did my program there were 12 of us there's 12 people accepted every year onto this program internationally and I think four of us this year were New Zealanders so we we had we had a majority which was great wow. and then Australians. so half the half the group were into Fidian, which was nice but 
for us, it was just a constant marvel, I think, being in this very historic, important place. And, and I guess there was a lot of imposter syndrome for us as well, because I didn't grow up with a lot of the references and a lot of the, the same kind of education that, that some of my peers had. But I would say, you know, the Guildhall was a baptism of fire into, into the music industry on the side of the world, because it's very fast paced and very pressurized. And, you know, they really expect a lot from you. So It was a great experience. It was also just very, very tough, I think, from a cultural perspective. Yeah. I don't want to sound like I was down on it because I do, I've I've loved so much learning about being here and, and, well, being in the UK and and everything like that. It's it's been such a positive experience overall. It's just, I think everyone must feel this. You, You miss home. You miss sort of people's way of interacting. And I sort of found myself even just missing, like, the accents. I'm sure that's why... Whenever Kiwis and Australians meet each other on the side of the world, you sort of instantly go, oh, (laughs) someone from my part of the world. So I had a couple of close friends of mine at the school. I I went on a road trip with two of them one day and they were sort of sitting in the front seat talking to each other. And I was sitting in the back seat and I just couldn't, I I just kept laughing because I thought to myself, you know, I've only heard these accents on TV and here are these two people and this is their actual accent. This is them like, and I just couldn't quite believe it. Like, I feel like I'm in a film. Like, no, I, I felt the same. I remember like seeing the red buses and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the post boxes and the, the phone boxes and going, oh, okay, so this does exist. Yeah. So when you arrived as a 23-year-old in London, how did you get yourself sorted? Like, you know, finding a place to live and finding some friends. I mean, I guess you had your friends from um, Guildhall, but yeah. who did you live with? what happened there I went straight into a place called good enough college which is I mean that the name itself was quite funny when I thought it's built good enough but it it was a it's a student college that's mainly for commonwealth students and there it's fantastic because they basically recognize that when you're coming from that far away you just need somewhere safe (laughs) to just be so you can get your feet so I went straight into that and, and met through that college met a lot of other people from New Zealand and Australia and, and, you know, other Commonwealth countries. So that was a great place to be. So you kind of had a place to crash as soon as you arrived and it was like, good, okay, I've sorted that out. Now I just need to kind of figure out how to... How How the tube works. Oh, yeah. Did you find that difficult? Yeah. We have no train stations in New Zealand. So the first train station I ever went into was, I think it was Paddington. And I had never been in a train station before. And I just remember walking off the train with my big suitcase and having no idea what to do. Like, it was like a movie moment. I I wish that someone had filmed it because I literally walked the wrong way. I, like, saw the barriers where everyone else was walking. And I thought, oh, that must not be the way to go because there's barriers. So I walked the opposite way. And I walked for ages before someone said, where are you going? Like, you can't get out of the train station that way. I was like, oh. Oh, just absolutely. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you were so you were you were actually like Paddington the Bear at Paddington Station. Yeah, I was. I was like, Paddington the Bear. <laughs> um, so how long was the was your degree? Two years. And then after that you started getting work as an opera singer. Yeah. And just uh going from place to place, living out of suitcases for a lot of it, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so people who don't really know opera or haven't been to the opera, I mean it's a kind of a niche genre, isn't it? Yeah. And there are lots of stereotypes yeah. <laughs> about, about opera, the world of opera. You know, like stuffy people in, in formal clothing and, you know, grand events and that kind of thing. So can you talk about the stereotypes? Which of them are true and which of them aren't? <laughs> I think there's definitely uh, the stereotype with opera that it's 
only for some people and it's not a very inclusive niche. I think that's something that in the modern in modern times, opera directors, especially in opera companies, are really trying to combat because, of course, opera's origins uh, were, it was for everybody. It was like Shakespeare was writing for everyone. He wasn't just writing for court entertainment. And that was exactly the same with opera. And I, then I think it became this very snobby thing and something that people sort of thought, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, that's only for the, the super, super rich people and I'm not quite sure why or, or how that started to happen, but that's something, yeah, that I think is still a stereotype today. And, you know, I've seen operas and I've, I've been involved with, well, yeah, I, I, sort of, I sort of get where that stereotype comes from. And, and to, to be honest, in some places, I guess it's still, it's still true because in terms of like sometimes there's the dress code and there's, there's places that won't let you in if you're wearing jeans, for example, which is something that, you know, my dad hates a lot because my dad's not an opera goer, but he'll he'll go if I'm in it. <laughs> so he really can't stand that kind of thing either. And yeah, I guess I guess it's just something that we're we're constantly trying to combat. And myself, I like you know the family background that I have. I feel very strongly about it being a more inclusive thing and wanting it to be a more inclusive thing. But it's it's something that I think will take time because it's become entrenched. I think that particular stereotype but I think at the end of the day opera's struggle is to justify itself in the modern world and you know why should people come to the opera why you know why should we continue to be interested in some of these stories that were written hundreds of years ago you know and that's something that I do feel quite passionately about because I think personally I feel like there's some opera that and they're just like anything there's some stories that I think "Mm, we don't actually need to keep telling this story in my opinion we don't that's not actually something that maybe we should be still telling but there's other stories within opera and the music itself that is so powerful and so beautiful and actually really really does have a message that when it's done well it can really move people and it doesn't matter who you are what your previous experience is how old you are where you come from it will resonate with you when it's done well because that's the nature of good storytelling and also music is it's something that can really impact people and, you know, they might not know why, but it it is very impactful. And I think, yeah, it's just something that is the responsibility of every opera singer, every opera creative or every, every person that goes into this industry, I believe should have a very firm understanding within themselves of what they think the relevance is and what we want to do with it because if it's just about well I want to do this because I I don't know if it's just a sort of self-reflective reason then I don't know if that's necessarily good enough at the end of the day it is a job so people including myself we do need to go out and work and and that's the reason for doing it as well but I think when it's an artistic job like this that can't be the main reason and it can't be the only reason you're doing what you're doing because I think art has a responsibility, especially now, to actually mean something to people and actually be helpful. And if you can be helpful, that's the best thing that you can hope for. Do you have like a philosophy that you live by? Yeah, I do, I think. Um, and it's it's something I think I got from my my dad and my granddad, again, was just... I'll, I'll tell the story. So I, I had um, I did an exam once at university and it was a singing exam so you had to give about 40 minutes of a performance 
and I got about halfway through and I just lost my voice and I couldn't keep going and it was my the big exam at the end of the degree and I my singing teacher was in the audience and she said you know why don't you just go outside and have a drink of water and come back in 20 minutes and we'll just do this again and of course at that point I just thought it was the end of the world and so I went outside and I called my dad and I just remember him he listened to me have my freak out and then he said all right you know you've had your freak out you've fallen off the horse now just get back on you've got to get back on and you've got to keep going and I think that's that was that's been something I've remembered throughout the years um my philosophy is that I try and accept things are not always going to be smooth you know there's always going to be something in your life that is testing you and and pushing your boundaries a little bit and the important thing is as cliches as it might sound the important thing is always to get back on the horse because that's at the end of the day that's that's all you really can do but I also like the idea that you you can choose to keep soldiering on. That that's that's something that even when you're feeling like you've really been knocked down, you can you can keep going, and that's what I that's what I try and do. <laughs> I and try. so, what happened when you went back in? Yeah, I went back in and I did it. <laughs> Maybe that's why I've remembered it. And I thought, okay, well, actually, my dad was right about something. <laughs> Shout out to your dad. Sounds like a great guy. Yeah. He is. <laughs> So let's talk about your show that's coming up at the Edinburgh International Festival. So you're one of the artists involved in a series of performances, is that right? Yeah, concert with, well, the the pianist is Malcolm Martineau, who's just a legend. He's he's really the best person ever. Uh, And we're doing, there's a group of four of us, and we're doing the Brahms Liebeslieder Walzer, which is a really, really lovely set of songs all about love, basically. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, opera loves love. Yeah, not it? <laughs> so you must have had to learn different languages. Is that part of your training? Learning yeah. German and Italian and all of that? Yeah. So which one's the hardest? Uh, I would say, for me personally, I'd say German is the hardest. because It's I, got all the hicks and the hooks. Yeah, and so many rules. I do not have the head to remember all the rules. But, um, yeah, I'd say French and, and Italian are, are okay. But, you know, in Australia and, and I guess New Zealand as well, we never learnt languages, you know, no. at school. It was, yeah, it's like it's not part of our upbringing. And so... No, as everyone here speaks in. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel so inferior to, you know, whenever I travel around anywhere and yeah. uh, I'm like, oh, sorry, I only speak English. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, I learned yeah. it in primary school so I can probably have a conversation with you. I'm like, no, it's terrible. Gosh, I feel, I just feel, it's just not, it's just not right. So hopefully Australia no, fixes no. that soon. Yeah. So I, I imagine that in your working life, you know, so many people in your working circles must be immigrants themselves or yeah. travellers or international, you know, people. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you feel like an immigrant um, when you're at work or is it more that you feel like an immigrant when you're just not at work? The, yeah, that's a good point, actually, because I, I was just thinking the, the cast of the show that I'm in at the moment is super international. So everyone is everyone's from a different place so yeah I guess at work in a way that's the time that you almost feel the most normal because everybody's from somewhere else it's in the most mundane moments like when when I'm in France and I, and I go out to buy something for lunch or, you know and I go into the supermarket and there's just literally 500 different types of cheese and it's so alien to me like I stand there just in shell shock because I'm like in New Zealand we have like sliced cheddar cheese and that's it in little plastic things like I, yeah 
<laughs> and, you, and you think, gosh, I'm just so far away from home. So I would say it's, it's yeah, in the sort of more normal moments that you go, yeah, okay, I'm really, I'm not, I'm not from, from here. Yeah. Where is that? No one's from here. So it's... I can imagine because I, I speak to a lot of artists who are immigrants and they, mm-hmm tend to you know just work in one place and and they've had a battle with kind of like being an African in a British industry or something like that whereas you're very different because it is a very global industry the opera the opera world is it West Side Story you're in at the moment? Yes, West Side yeah, Story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're playing Maria. I, I, I just have to tell you this story about my first exposure to West Side Story was because yeah. I went to an all-girls Catholic school and we did West Side Story. <laughs> oh, my God. As our musical. I think I was in year 10 or something like that. And so I played one of the Jets. Oh, and... wow. <laughs> Oh and I God. had like five o'clock shadow makeup and a sock down my trousers oh. pretending to be a New York gang member, a Melbourne Catholic schoolgirl. I mean, who chose that and why is yeah, my question bold. now. It's a terrible <laughs> choice. Terrible choice. I just feel because I've got two kids now and I go to their school shows, which are just most of the time very tedious. And I just think, oh, my God, the parents who came to that show must have been yeah. trying to contain their laughter the whole time and like Maria and Tony were both sopranos <laughs> it just just didn't work on so many levels anyway so how are you enjoying West Side Story what's your take on um the relevance today of, of what yeah. you're, you're working on yeah well, I, I mean I'm I'm loving I'm loving this this production it's by uh, the production was uh, made by Barry Kosky who's from Australia as well so when he was when he came in on the first day and was giving the concept, my first reaction was, oh my gosh, it's an Australian accent. <laughs> but um, I think West Side Story is actually a really lovely thing to be working on at the moment. We're not doing a very traditional interpretation of it. It's a very different kind of feeling. But having said that, it, the story is just so relevant, I feel, to what we're all going through. And the thing I love about this West Side Story, or West Side Story in general, is that every character is so well developed that you... I think the the whole thing about the piece is not judging people by what you think they're affiliated with and who you think they are. But actually, once you start to get to know these characters, you're like, okay, actually, there's there's reasons why they're like this, and there's reasons why, you know, these characters are choosing to do these things, and it makes no sense to judge people just based on what you might think before you get to know them. And that's a very relevant feeling, I think, today in this in this yeah. era of time. We have so much in common, but we're so determined to only see difference that it's dangerous, I think. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, great. Well, look, Madison, I've taken up a lot of your time, so thank you. Thank you so much. And it just remains for me to just express my gratitude to you for making the time today. And um, may you always find good coffee in whatever whatever city you land in is my blessing to you. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for having a real pleasure. No worries at all. Bye. All right, see ya. Thank you, Madison. It was so nice to hang with a fellow Antipodean and not be judged for my total coffee elitism. Do book your tickets to see Madison in the festival and follow her on social media. Details, as ever, are in the show notes. You have been listening to I Am An Immigrant, produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. It is an Ice and Fire Theatre production specially commissioned by the Edinburgh International Festival. Thank you so much for listening. Life's too short to have bad coffee and catch ya next time. Thank you.